0: Good morning. We've got a lot to cover this morning, as usual, so let's jump right in. We are going through the book of Romans in our Sunday school hour, and today we've reached Romans, the second half of Romans 4. Uh, Remember, I I cut it off last week. We're we're right in the middle of uh, the, the epistles teaching on justification by faith, and specifically, Paul has been explaining that the power of God, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And so he's been unpacking that phrase, and and explaining it, and he's been defending it from the Old Testament, uh, arguing that this isn't just something that I came up with, but this is seen in the Old Testament. It's taught by God, and has come to fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, received by faith alone. So, last week when we looked at uh, verses 1-8 through 8 of chapter 4, we saw the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We talked a lot about the forensic nature of justification. Who remembers what that is? What are we talking about when we say forensic? legal, yes, the legal declaration, the courtroom language, the, uh, the vindication, the verdict um, of God, um, righteousness. Righteous because of Christ. Righteous by faith. And um, we, we began to see how David and uh, Abraham and David are used as Old Testament illustrations uh, to prove that this gospel is true, that this gospel is rooted in Scripture, that this gospel is rooted in Israel's history, that it's intertestamental, Old Testament and New Testament. And that's, of course, where we left off last week. We just spent the whole hour on those first eight verses. Um, As we begin today, though, or to say before we begin, I just want to show how what we covered last week is rooted in the Reformed catechisms and confessions on justification. And just so you know that the the catechisms have a particular way of 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 putting the language that is very very helpful here, or condensing, summarizing what we've been talking about. The Baptist Catechism, which uh, the the version that we use, mirrors the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us Received by faith alone. So again, it hits on the fact that justification is an act. It's not a process. It's not something He begins in us that's completed over time. It is a forensic act, a declaration, where we are forgiven and counted righteous because of Christ. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism. Question 60. How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been Uh, As perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, all I need to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Again, faith alone. And we have this language of, I'm a sinner. I've done nothing to deserve this. I've done nothing but evil. But God grants me and credits to me this satisfaction and righteousness. Christ in my place. And it even goes on, uh, question 61 of the Heidelberg. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? It is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me. Right? We talked about this last week. Our faith is not righteousness that God just accepts as our righteousness. Faith is a means by which we cling to the righteousness of another. Heidelberg gets at that. Your faith doesn't have any value. Only Christ's satisfaction, His righteousness and holiness is that value. Only that can make you right with God. I receive this righteousness. I make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. It's beautiful language. And it is rooted in the first eight verses of Romans 4. And that's what we kind of saw last week. Uh, one last question before we move on, though. What if someone says to you, and I meant to say this last week, but we, we ran out of time. It is by the Holy Spirit producing good works in us that we are justified or enter heaven. So that we really can't boast in them. So you get that objection? If if you say to someone, we're not to a Roman Catholic, we're not saved by works. Otherwise you could boast. And they say, Well, absolutely, in some sense, because the Holy Spirit produces those things in me. How should we respond to that? How would we respond to that? I would still say that the sin that we have committed is still what condemns us. I and mean, we still have that condemning sin. I mean, I'm just besides the fact that those good works do not pay. Besides that, we still have the sin that has to be paid for. We are still guilty before God for those sins we have they have to be atoned for. They have to be atoned for. Blood has to be, has to be shed. Yeah, they don't Yeah, they don't justify at all. Absolutely. And they're after being made right with God. Kim? With that, uh, the atonement is to say that Christ's atonement is not sufficient. It's more, something more is needed, good works, so that the justification can be completed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Christ himself isn't enough. You've got to do your part. He allows you to do your part. But his work alone is not enough. And ultimately as well, this still makes our righteousness the means of our justification. Because you get into a conversation with a Roman Catholic or federal vision, new perspective on Paul. Even I mentioned John Piper last week and how he talks about how our good works enable us to enter heaven, heaven at the last day. The, the root error in all those, they would all agree and, and say, look, it's the Spirit that works those things in you. It's the sovereign Spirit. And that's how they get away with saying, okay, it's not really you from your deadness. It's the Spirit bringing this about in you. But even still, even if the Spirit brings about good works, and those good works are what play a role in our justification, it's us, ultimately, in which our righteousness is based, instead of Christ in our place. The Reformers continually, because Scripture pushes us back on Christ. It's substitution. Substitution. Alright, so that, that, that's just a sum up last week and we outline today. I'm going to have to work to get through all of this. There's just a lot in this chapter, um, but we're going to try. Uh, Just really two main sections, though. Uh, The purpose of circumcision from the life of Abraham, and the life of Abraham as an illustration of genuine faith. That's kind of what we see. Uh, We kind of get a picture of what faith looks like, what a living faith looks like with Abraham, but Paul does take a brief kind of excursus here to talk about circumcision and the promises to the Jews. So, we've seen the nature of justification. Abraham and David as illustrations. What then were the purposes of circumcision, specifically to Abraham, and God's dealing with the Jews? Um, half the book is given to this question. But Paul, all along the way, drops hints until he really, really gets to it in chapter 11, specifically, 9 through 11. Um, Romans 4, 9 through 12 then. Would someone volunteer and read that for us? Chris, thank you. Thank you. Um, his goal here is to show that this blessing of forensic justification, righteousness, is given to everyone, both Jew and Gentile. Um, and to say that, to, 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 to nail that down, he talks about the justification of Abraham in relation to Circumcision, that that mark that distinguished Jew from Gentile. Right? And part of the question is what advantage does the Jew have? If, if you're telling me that just if we are saved the same way in the Old Testament as we are in the New Testament, then, then what advantage at all does, does, it, does it have to be a Jew? Um, and his point is circumcision was subservient to the gospel not a part of the gospel. Um, here, recall the, um, the Galatian heresy. The heresy that um, it appears in the book of Acts, chapter 15. It appears in the book of, well, it, in the Galatian church. It's what Paul, Paul is writing against. He writes that book in response to the Galatian heresy. The Galatian heresy is, sure, faith and God is necessary, that's great. We can be saved by faith. Uh, But you also have to be circumcised and obey the law. That's what the the Judaizers were alleging, were teaching, were advocating in the churches. Paul's point is, look, Abraham believed... He was counted righteous before, not after his circumcision. So circumcision can't be necessary for salvation. You're telling people that you have to obey certain aspects of the law, but Abraham was justified before he obeyed certain aspects of the law. That's his argument. So he goes on. Verses, uh, um, I think I got the verses wrong here. He received the sound. For we say that faith was counted as Abraham, uh, to Abraham as righteousness. How was it then counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not before. Excuse me, it was not after, but before. He was circumcised, 9 and 10. The truth is, if we look from the book of Genesis, uh, um, we see that there was a minimum of 13 years between when Abraham was counted righteous and then when God gave him circumcision. And most uh, rabbi scholars uh, argue that it was 29 years later, which I think is accurate. 30 years 30 years. He was counter-righteous 30 years before he was ever given these instructions for, that marked, distinguished the Jewish people. Circumcision, then, could not be the basis of his relationship with God. And, you know, if we think about this, think of, think of any works of the law. And, and it's apl- applicable in the same way. Right, If Abraham was counted righteous the law of God wasn't even revealed at that point. What did he know? What, did he, what could he have ever done to be made right with God if, if he didn't even have that information? And this applies to us in our own day as well. We are justified, counted righteous, on the basis of faith, and that comes before any and every good work that we could ever or ever do. In fact, in other parts of Scripture, these works that are apart from faith are called dead works. You, before there's new life, before the Spirit uh, fills your heart, gives you a heart of flesh, takes out your heart of stone... It is impossible to do anything pleasing to God. So, justification has never been, do the right thing, and then at least when you try, God will count you righteous. Counting righteous, being made righteous, or I should say being declared righteous, is foundational and fundamental to everything else that follows in the Christian life. That our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Um, Circumcision to Abraham was given as a seal. An assurance to him of what had already been given to him and promised to him. He had already been declared righteous 29 years previously. Circumcision was a seal of that. And this made him both the father of Jews who believe, not Jews in general, although that was the earthly typical purpose of circumcision, and the father of Gentiles as well. Those who imitate his faith. Apart from faith, you are not a child of Abraham. As a... Baptist, I emphasize that. (laughs) In fact, we're going to talk about baptism briefly here. But, see his point. Abraham is a father of many nations because of his faith, not because of his obedience to the law or circumcision. Questions? Comments? Yes, Mary. It's good to have you back. I'm ready for the questions. Let's go. (laughs) I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> I'm glad you asked because I'm actually going to take two slides right now to talk about that. Um, um, yeah, this is ground zero for um, the doctrine, uh, Presbyterian doctrine of infant baptism. Not the Catholic doctrine or the Methodist doctrine or the Lutheran doctrine uh, or the Anglican doctrine, but the Presbyterian doctrine of infant baptism. Um, and here how, is how that argument goes from this text. Um, Circumcision is said to be here as a sign pointing forward. That's what a sign is, you know, Chattanooga, 12 miles ahead. And a seal, which looks back, a covenantal promise, like a sealing of a document. This is yours. Um, In their argument, baptism is a fulfillment of circumcision, serving the same purpose. And since circumcision was given to infants for this purpose, sign and seal, baptism is to be given to infants for the same reason. That's that's in a nutshell the argument from this text. Um, Here's where we would respond based upon this text. Um, The first is, this credo circumcision. Abraham was an adult. And it was 30 years after he was justified. It only served as a sign and seal because he had already believed. Because there was already faith present. You can't have a sign and a seal without faith. You can have, well, excuse me, you can have a sign that points forward, but you can't have a seal without faith. Seal is the assurance that something is given, that something is possessed. Um, this verse does not say that circumcision served this purpose for anyone other than Abraham. And we hold that it it could not. There's only one Abraham. That's kind of, you know, ground zero to a Baptist interpretation of this verse, is Abraham had specific promises that were not given to everybody. Not every Jew was said, you're going to be the father of many nations. Abraham was. He was significant. He was the federal head of that covenant. He was the pitcher of Jesus Christ. He is the one who received all the promises. Circumcision tied you into Abraham. So you, you have participation in the promises through your federal head, but ultimately the federal head of the covenant is the one receiving the ultimate promises. And so... Um, that's why it was a sign and seal. We say it is a leap illegitimate from the text to say because it was a sign and seal for Abraham, it was a sign and seal then for every infant who was circumcised. We don't believe that that's that's justifiable from the passage. Um, Esau was circumcised. Was it a circumcision, a sign and seal, the righteousness that he had by faith? Of course not. God hated Esau. Um, so it only served as a sign and seal to to Abraham ultimately, and then we would argue that circumcision had many other purposes that were tied to the physical and earthly theocratic nature of the old covenant, and thus cannot be equated one to one with baptism. Yes, there are some similarities, like there are similarities between the Passover and the Lord's Supper, but Roman Catholicism says that the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover which is why they eat a sacrifice. That's what you did in the Passover. The reformer's like, no, there's similarities, but they're totally two different ordinances. And then we say the same with circumcision and baptism. There are far too many dissimilarities, and there are similarities. So, and then of course, circumcision pointed forward. Baptism never points forward. It always points backward to what has been done. Um, and of course, you have to get to the previous point before you can get there because you have to recognize that there are differences in the purposes. But, but baptism is always looking back to the spirit washing and cleansing, never looking forward to what something might be true. So that's the basis of this verse um, and some of the discussion between Presbyterians and and Baptists on this. Uh, But the main point, and don't miss the main point by getting caught up in this discussion, the main point really is to make him a father of both Jews and Greeks through the imitation of his faith. And and that's what Paul really, his point in nailing down, which water's not even in the passage. Baptism isn't even mentioned for two more chapters. So... um, I don't think it's illegitimate to try to force it in here and we should get caught up on it. Mary, does that help? Other questions or comments? I know there's a number of Presbyterians in here. I love you. Sure, go ahead. Yep. I love it. I was talking to an uh, OPC pastor yesterday, um, Kate Wall's grandfather at the, at the wedding. And I was telling him, hey, yeah, about Westminster and, and that I'm a Baptist and couldn't get persuaded of infant baptism. And he goes, oh, we love adult baptism. <laughs> He's like, I am all for it. And I'm like, you know what? I'd love to hear that because we have far more in common. When it comes to that, um than we do in our in our differences over the infants. And then, and then in, the, in the next point, what did Abraham do right after he was circumcised? Not in his passage, but we know the history of what did Abraham but he would have done how Abraham would go do to circumcise every member of his family mm-hmm. and his servants and all that. And so everybody was circumcised right after he was his whole family. So I'm just throwing that out. I know, but but, but again and that goes to the fact that we don't see circumcision and baptism as the same. No, no, that's fine, but I'm going to say that's what he Yep. Yep. Yeah, totally. Totally. I, absolutely. And, um, and uh, everyone in his household. And, uh, well, that, that also included all of his hundreds of servants as well. And um, anyone associated with the household at all. Um, but, yeah, our, our differences there would be that baptism and circumcision oh, yeah. are different, but... Absolutely. Anything else? Okay. All right. Let's move on then. Okay. The example of Abraham. Whew. Yeah, I gotta I gotta speed up here. Um you don't walk back. Take another three weeks to talk about baptism. Seriously, it's a complicated and intricate issue. Um, All right, the example of Abraham is then moved. Um, And and Paul gives the example of Abraham to distinguish law and gospel and to show how the promises were not limited to just Israel and to show how justification is the result of God's life-changing word. Right? It is the power of God unto salvation. That's what is being um, uh, the, uh, taught in these next uh, thir- verses 13 through 25. Um, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to, uh, because I have it broken down section by section. But he continues. And he begins by distinguishing long gospel in verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The Abrahamic promise, again, came through faith. It did not come through the law. If it did come through the law, then faith is null and void. Now, see the stark. Antithesis here. I've really tried to nail that down the last few weeks. Law and gospel, there is an antithesis here. If the law is any part of faith or the gospel or justification, faith is null and void. Remember Romans 4 4? excuse me, um, 4 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, you have to stop working in order to be justified. Which is so contrary to our natural inclination. I want to do my part. I, 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 I feel this is something I need to do. I need to earn the gift that I'm given. That's our natural inclination. But there is a distinct antithesis here if it comes through the law then faith faith is null void you've just totally undermined faith which is of course what the reformers said to the roman catholic church your way of formulating this has made faith null and void even though you give lip service to it you obey the law but you believe the gospel That's the antithesis. And so then, the purpose of the law, as he concludes there, really, is to expose sin. For there is no law, there is no transgression. Um, He's not saying that there's no human sinfulness without the law. He's saying that the law's purpose is to reveal the transgression. The law's purpose is to expose sin, not to lead you to to, to righteousness. Or I should say, the righteousness of justification. And this is something he's going to pick up on in the, in the, in the chapters ahead. But he kind of just drops it in right there. There's no law. There's no transgression. Um, okay, so he distinguishes law and gospel again. And now in verse 16 and 17, he shows that the promises were not limited to Israel, which he does this again as well. That is why it depends upon faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. The promises were not limited to the physical descendants of Abraham, here identified as the adherent of the law, but to all those who share the faith of Abraham. And this guarantees the fulfillment of the promise. And it ensures that the promise is on the basis of grace. Because faith is a gift from God. You see the the logic here? If, If... If the promises and the heir of the world of Abraham, you're going to have, you know, um, um, you're going to be the father of many nations. If this is dependent upon the law, how do you know it's actually going to happen? Because then human will and volition and obedience is the basis of the promise. But Paul is saying, look, because it depends on faith, because, because it depends on faith, it depends upon grace, and this guarantees the fulfillment of the promise. Grace is the divine working of God in the heart of, of, of human beings. It concludes here by showing how justification is the result of God's life-changing word, that if it depends upon faith and grace, it guarantees the fulfillment because that comes about by God's life-changing word. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, verse 17, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Here's the language of creation used to describe justification. Is a judicial and forensic act of declaring righteous, right? God called all things into existence by His word. While we are dead in sin, God made us alive in Christ by calling our faith in new life into existence. In 2 Corinthians, Paul draws um, the, the very same analogy. I think it's in chapter five where uh, chapter four, where he speaks of um, for God said uh, it is uh, for 2 Corinthians 4 6 for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ same language God spoke the world into existence He speaks the dead sinner into existence. And this is how Gentiles, who were no people, are now called my people. And this is how the gospel, going back to the thesis statement of Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. that reveals that it's based on faith, reveals that it's faith based on grace, it reveals that it's not based on works, it reveals that we cannot boast in what we've done, it reveals that we are declared righteous at the moment of that calling out, of that calling into existence, the things that don't exist, it really all comes together at that point. The gospel, the power of God unto salvation. Then he holds up Abraham as an example of genuine faith. Forgive me for going fast. I've got just a few minutes and then we'll have questions. But I want to get through this so we can jump to Romans 5 next week. Here, verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew faith, strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith isn't an empty faith. It isn't faith in itself. It isn't a virtue or has any value in and of itself. Abraham's faith is a genuine trust in the promise of God. It is a living faith. It is an active faith. It is a worshiping faith. This helps us define what faith is. In fact, it's part of the basis of, if we think about this question, what is faith? The Heidelberg Catechism is the best place to go here. What is faith? Knowledge, assent, and trust. Abraham knew the promise. It was revealed to him. God spoke to him. God speaks to us through his word. We hear and we know what it says. Abraham assented. He agreed and accepted the word of God as true. We hear the gospel. We agree to it. Yes. I believe that Christ rose from the dead. For my justification. That he died for my sin. I believe the testimony of scripture. That speaks of his life and his death and the need for atonement and sin and righteousness and judgment. But he also trusted it. He rested on what he knew and agreed to. He lived in light of what he knew and agreed to. Even when it seemed doubtful because of the circumstances. Let's see, I'm 100 years old. My wife is barren and I'm supposed to have a child. He trusted God's word, not his own feelings or perception or wisdom. If that causes you to ask a question about what we know about Abraham. Hang on. This is how he's an example of true faith, of genuine faith to us. And so Paul... Laying forth the example of Abraham applies it to us in conclusion. The words that were counted to him were not written for our sake alone, verse 23, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. The promises of Abraham were shadowy a child, a nation. He wasn't revealed, it wasn't revealed to him the gospel of, uh, that we have um, as the revelation of the mystery. It was typological. He believed the types. It's like looking at the animal sacrifices and not knowing exactly that that referred to a suffering servant, Jesus Christ, but knowing in some shadowy way, blood must be shed, and I need this, as the basis of my right standing before God. He believed those types and shadows. We have Christ delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's the same promise. Type and anti-type. We have the fulfillment and we have the same way of being made right with God. Justification, excuse me, Resurrection then being that sign that that justifying verdict that Christ accepted, excuse me, God accepted the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, which and, and you know, ushered him into the presence of God, which is our assurance as well that in him this promise, this righteousness, this eternal life is ours through faith. Alright, um, so to conclude, he's the, Abraham is the model example of faith in the real world. He gives us a definition of genuine faith. He shows us how we are made right with God and we receive the promises, even as ungodly, even as dead in sin, even as Gentiles. He shows us the way to strengthen our faith, to know God's Word and live in light of it, and to give glory to God as He did. These are the ultimate things that define reality and shape our lives as Christians. And I think in one last thing here that we can note, if we think about the life of Abraham, boy, he did fall into sin and unbelief. Remember, he lied about Sarah. He went into Hagar, which wasn't really a uh, um, manifesting a belief in the promise, was it? <laughs> It was an act of unbelief. It kind of seems to contradict Paul's words. But ultimately, genuine faith does not mean perfect obedience. Over the long term, genuine faith clings to the promises of God no matter what. Genuine faith gives glory to Him in all circumstances, though He wavered at times. He is the model of genuine faith. He did not fall away into unbelief. All right. Thanks for letting me speed through that um, so that we can get to Romans 5, 1 through 11 next week. But um, there are two minutes left for questions. So if there are any questions or comments, we will close with that.